Some of the images and sounds you are about to see and hear are graphic in nature. Viewer discretion is advised. from the outside world and to make contact with loved ones. The calls came from survivors. And they came from some of the 3,000 who never came home. a bittersweet time, having a need 
to remember, but what we do remember was horrific. Uh, we're going to talk about all that tonight, and the vision that was born out of, was born out of the tragedy of 9/11. David Banks is going to speak to that, along with the other IRP members of the IRP Five, uh, and uh, what they saw at Ground Zero that prompted the push to create a product that this would never happen again on America's homeland. And we're going to get into that. Samson, as we go down this road, uh, remembering is always difficult of tragedies, but you would be remiss not to take a moment to remember. Your thoughts as we go back. Well, I mean, you have to really think about that. For most of us that are, you know, at least middle age, you know, even like the kids that are just now graduating high school, I mean, they're being, getting taught this as a history lesson, but this was a moment in time that truly shaped our nation. Uh, we haven't seen an attack on our, on national soil since the 40s, you know, when uh, Japan had the audacity to bomb Pearl Harbor and attack us there, bringing us into World War II. So to have this happen in the modern age, I mean, it literally sent tremors throughout our society. I mean, we, we were of the mindset here in the United States that nobody would dare have the audacity to try and attack us, let alone on our own soil. And now here it is, we have, you know, multiple planes being directed at not only the World Trade Center, but also the Pentagon and other targets. And uh, we had to come to the face of reality that we are not as, an, as invincible as we thought. We have people out there that are willing to go to the extremes to take us out as a country. And there have to be proactive solutions put in place to prevent this from happening again. No, absolutely right. And we're going to deal with all of that. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, tell friends and neighbors as we look back tonight on AJC Radio, uh, make no mistake about it, we do remember. And tonight we show respect to uh, that memory. Uh, feel free to dial into the show at 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. And we're going to get into that here right after the break. AJC Radio takes a walk down memory lane, a difficult one, as we remember the victims of 9-11. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252. Or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. There are no loose ends in TV procedural dramas. At the end of the hour, the bad guy always gets what's coming to him. Unfortunately, the real world is a lot more complicated. We know from the work of the Innocence Project and other organizations in the Innocence Network that the system doesn't always get it right. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, since 1989, nearly 2,000 people have been exonerated of crimes they didn't commit. 
what people don't realize is a good number of those people pleaded guilty to crimes even though they were innocent. In fact, in nearly 10% of the nation's DNA exonerations, people pleaded guilty to serious crimes and agreed to serve significant prison time because the system is stacked against them, especially they are poor and people of color. That's right. The stakes are so high that we have innocent men and women agreeing to serve long prison sentences. A system that puts that much pressure on people to plead guilty is a problem. Visit guiltypleadproblem.org to learn more about the men and women who are pressured into pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit. And join us in demanding that our elected officials do something to protect the innocent people who get caught up in a broken criminal justice system. Thank you. You can't sit here. Don't add her to the chain. It was just a joke. We're not friends. Why are you talking to me? You started it. It's so gross. Loser. Weirdo. I've said and done things before that I'm not proud of. Just as I've been hurt by others. The thing is, this, this is not who I am. And it's definitely not who I want to be. I don't want to be cruel. I don't want to spread gossip. I don't want to be a body shaver. I don't want to exclude anyone. I don't want to make anyone feel lonely. Left out. Hurt. We have the power to be more. We can create a kinder world. It's not that hard. We just need to stop. Take a moment. And consider others before we speak. And before we act. Be more. Be more. Be more. Because I'm 16, I can't drive at night. Because I'm 16, I can't work past 10 o'clock on a school night. Because I'm 16, I can't get a cell phone contract without my parents. Because I'm 16, I can't get a flu shot without my mother's consent. At 16, I'm not old enough to watch an R-rated movie alone. Because I'm 16, I can't buy a lottery ticket. I can't vote. I can't drink. I can't smoke. I can't join the military. Because I'm 16, I can't sit on a jury, but I can be tried as an adult. I can get a lifetime criminal record. If I get arrested, my parents don't have to be notified. Because I'm 16, my mother had to sign this consent form so that I could participate in this video. But I can go to an adult prison. But I can go to Rikers Island. But I can be sent to Attica. My name is Michael Corriero. I was a judge for 28 years in the criminal courts of the state of New York. New York is one of only two states in the entire nation that automatically tries children as young as 16 as adults. We need to change that. Last week, my father sent me to my room. Next week, a judge could sentence me to an adult prison. We need to judge children as children. It's time to raise the age of criminal responsibility in New York. There are no loose ends in TV procedural dramas. At the end of the hour, the bad guy always gets what's coming to him. Unfortunately, the real world is a lot more complicated. We know from the work of the Innocence Project and other organizations in the Innocence Network that the system doesn't always get it right. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, since 1989, nearly 2,000 people have been exonerated of crimes they didn't commit. What people don't realize is a good number of those people pleaded guilty to crimes even though they were innocent. In fact, in nearly 10% of the nation's DNA exonerations, people pleaded guilty to serious crimes and agreed to serve significant prison time 
because the system is stacked against them, especially they're poor and people of color. That's right. The stakes are so high that we have innocent men and women agreeing to some sentences. A system that puts that much pressure on people to plead guilty is a problem. Visit guiltypleadproblem.org to learn more about the men and women who are pressured into pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit. And join us in demanding that our elected officials do something to protect the innocent people who get caught up in a broken criminal justice system. Thank you. I don't have to tell you about the challenges we face every day. That would be like preaching to the choir. Yeah. Today you have a chance to face the challenge of your risk for diabetes. My dad had diabetes, and one in four U.S. adults are at risk, myself included. If you're older than 45 or African-American, that risk increases. So here's a chance to ask yourself, what can I do? Talk to your doctor about getting screened and know what your options are. Learn more at AskScreenKnow.com. I stand for peace. I stand for diversity. I stand for dignity. I stand for respect. I stand for fairness. Red, yellow, black, white. We're all the same color. When you turn out the light. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we take a moment to look back at 9-11, a week removed from one of the most horrific tragedies to hit this nation at one time. The first responders, those that rushed into the towers, you're going to hear about those heroes and there's a lot of them uh, that sought to save lives in the middle of almost absolute death. Uh, and tonight we have to look back. Uh, we do it every year on this show, as the country does as well, to say to the victims that we are sorry. Uh, but we also deal with the fact that how safe are we today? How secure is this nation now from another terrorist threat? We deal with the Taliban that is in Afghanistan, uh, American people being left over there, uh, citizens of this nation uh, in harm's way uh, as a result of the Taliban, but the Taliban also behind uh, and part of Al-Qaeda uh, are the folks that uh, were responsible for the tragedy of 9-11. Uh, it's ironic that we are in the anniversary of 9-11 and dealing with the very people um, that have taken control of Afghanistan as terrorists um, to do as they please. Uh, and the soldiers, Samson, that were lost over there 
Uh, I I know that there was a recognition of those soldiers that were lost. I believe it was nine soldiers uh, that died. Uh, and um, it's, a, it's truly a tragedy. Yes, sir. You, I think you're talking about the, the, the 13 that died at the Kabul airport over there. Yeah. Um, this, this, this senseless loss of life that's over the, going on over there is, you know, American forces try to pull out as many people as possible, not just our citizens. But, I mean, we have over the last 20 years had you know, local national interpreters that come through there. They put their lives on the line the same as we did. I, I mean, I remember when I was over there in 2005, we had multiple interpreters go out with us every time we went out on patrol. And they were just they were out there. They were risking getting into a firefight, even though they were unarmed. They were risking, you know, RPGs and roadside bombs and everything else. They got thrown at them. Because they believed in the fact that we were over there to help liberate their country, to help bring change to their country. So to see this mass exodus that's going on right now and the extensive loss of life and the sheer abandonment of our uh, not only our own U.S. citizens, but the people that helped us fight this, this war for two decades, uh, it's, it's disgusting and it's heart-wrenching as somebody that's been over there, lost friends, lost people that you know, you've know you gone through the muck and the mire with. And just, just, just to see this happening, it's... It's disgusting. Yeah, and the Nine Soldiers is a separate incident that happened some years ago uh, in Fort Hood, uh, where, oh. the, where the discrepancy was. But, uh, yeah, the 13 U.S. service members killed. Um, and to be honest with you, did not have to be. Uh, the, the, the complete debacle, the complete failure of this administration uh, in going in and doing what they did unprepared is the reason these lives were lost and that's something that cannot be ignored 9-11 the tragedy that happened on 9-11 was also as a result of a failure to communicate uh david uh to communicate between intelligence agencies of what threats were coming to the united states why are we here again with afghanistan as a result of Things not being done as they should have been right at the anniversary of 9-11 when things were not done as they should have been done. Well, I don't think uh, people really appreciate uh, the cultural impediments. They still exist in in law enforcement uh, to share information. There hasn't been any major attack on American soil, per se, um, but those cultural impediments uh, still exists. <clears throat> now that uh, information sharing impediments still exist, antiquated systems uh, used by law enforcement still exist. Uh, and if you listen to many of the people in the know, they say not much has changed. We have a government that continues to be reactive versus proactive. And there's a lot of internal kingdom building going on inside of a lot of these agencies and these institutions that are supposed to be concerned about the welfare of people, but they've become more political, they've become more divisive. And we see, we see that uh, in as recent as the 13 uh, servicemen who lost their lives because of a lack of proper preparation and planning 
and they're making decisions that are that are that are taking lives and it becomes really a a the country has really turned into even a more gross uh or I say a more gross almost idolatry or idol worship of uh elite uh, and the wealthy and th- those things like that, where many of the people down here and even the the, the average serviceman get, get, gets lost into the high level political maneuvering and things that are going on and, and being done for political purposes and not for the right purpose. And I think that's the sad reality. Uh, I, I would I, I would submit to you that uh, information sharing and the culture of that exists in law enforcement has worsened. And I suspect that, uh, especially given current events with the Taliban and and the rise of uh, some of these uh, terrorist organizations, uh, that that is inevitable to happen in Afghanistan uh, could result in another attack on this country. Without question. And that's, if you were to ask the question, what have we learned since 9-11. It is human nature to return to behaviors that you have been doing. Uh, When things first happen, uh, we're talking, people are having dialogue, and over a period of time, tragically, how soon do we forget the impact of 9-11 and what it did to this nation, what it did to family members, people that lost loved ones that day, Uh, and to know without a doubt a phone call coming in saying, hey, dad or mom, this is it. I think I'm going to die. I cannot even begin to comprehend that type of stress, pain, heartache, that would be on the other end of that phone and because you're completely helpless to do anything. Uh, We're going to play a clip right now where that story is true. Um, There were people that lost fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. Uh, I want you to hear this clip. We're going to talk about it on the other side of the break. Let's play it. It's been a year, Daddy. I really, really miss you. Mommy says you're safe now in a beautiful place called Heaven. Oh, 
can you sleep in one of your t-shirts? I think it's still smells like you. I don't need to sleep with the light on anymore. I'm trying not to cry, Daddy, but it still hurts. I really miss you, Daddy.
that she was supposed to be on one of those flights. I can't remember if it was the United flight or the American flight, but she had changed her ticket the night before because she wanted to take her boys to school rather than having somebody else take them to school while she went to Boston to Logan Airport to get on an 8 o'clock flight from Boston to L.A., which would have been the American Airlines flight or the United flight. My dad told me that probably eight months later, and I had no idea that she was supposed to be on one of those flights. Wow. When you hear that young lady, who's a young woman now, but the tough times, the years of coming up uh, without her father, it's one thing to lose a loved one that simply passes. To pass in such a way, I can't even imagine. How does that make you feel when you hear that? It, it's heartbreaking because you see how many people were affected on that day. You were watching this this weekend. We were watching the tributes, and you had the family members that were talking about. I never met my uncle, uh, my dad. I never met him because I was born just before he died in 9/11. And and you see that what happened that day was not just an act of terrorism. It was so much more than that. And it had far-reaching effects that 20 years later, people are, are looking back and saying that my whole life changed on that day. And in a moment, in a moment, I remember uh, I was actually working for an organization uh, called American Teleconferencing. Uh, did conference calls for various celebrities and people in government and I remember it was a break uh, between calls and we wondered why no one was on the floor and uh, they had a separate relaxing area foosball and pool where you could go between calls and relax and I remember seeing it on the TV uh, and they told us you guys can go home for the day, go home, because uh, nobody was focused anyway. Uh, I was completely stunned uh, of what I saw, and they played it over and over and over again of those planes hitting those buildings, um, which is something you'll never get out of your mind. And uh, so when I hear uh, these folks talk about um, their dad is gone, their brother's gone, and then you hear, which we're going to play some of these clips tonight for you, sometimes the phone calls going to that loved one, knowing they are trapped in that building, and there is no hope. There's no hope, because once that building begins to fall, and so depending on where you're located in that building, you're hearing the floors collapse i cannot even imagine well and unless you've been to new york city uh and seen the sheer mass of those buildings and the size and the height it is i've been i was in both i've been in both of those buildings before before 9 11 but you can't 
unimaginable is is not even a a good word uh to have all of that those buildings come down and the hundreds and thousands of people that work in those buildings it's just absolutely it's it's just unspeakable i can't imagine what those people went through on that day and sadly um the feckless um law enforcement at that time and not doing what they should have done contributed to that it's just it's sad and we and we it's so sad because you see this sort of thing continuing and some of this thing is some of these things are just avoidable people don't have to die uh i was i was reminded i saw uh i saw the u.s gymnast testifying at on capitol hill about the failure of the fbi not to take them seriously uh and there and which resulted in in hundreds of girls just ignoring what they said resulted in hundreds of more girls being sexually molested because what 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 is going on you got it's just tragic uh i said it's you want to remember uh all of the victims of that day but you you have to be circumspect in your view of some of the contributing factors to that and it's it's tragic because you still see this stuff going on you can't just ignore things and expect people not to be hurt uh you have a job to do and you need and and many times they don't take it serious enough and the resulting and i i get i get really irritated by that because people are losing their lives as a result or they're going to prison they're losing their lives because of government officials who don't just kind of selective they pick and choose what they want to do and people suffer as a result of it and many times they're uh almost like a crony system they're they're serving the interests of the wrong people not the actual people but of people in their circle and people with political and and monetary power they they serve a lot of these people and 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 we get lost uh in the uh in the noise of, of all of that for sure they've and one of the things you look at is you have the FBI over these past 20 years sit around and congratulate themselves over thwarting uh, terrorist attacks that they created. They'll go through and they'll um, recruit people to act like they're uh, going to bomb a federal building or a state building. And it's the FBI that builds the fake bomb and tells them to push the button and then they arrest the person, and it turns out they're the ones that brought the person in, convinced them to do it. I mean, one of the stories that always upset me is there was a young man who was mentally challenged, who was looking for a friend. They befriended him and convinced him to push the button on the cell phone to set off a fake bomb, then arrested him and convicted him. And you hear this over and over again, that the FBI is out there thwarting a terrorist attack, and when you look at the details of it, more often than not, you're seeing that they're the ones that were involved in it. 
I mean, it's hypocritical is what it is. William. You know, um, as David was talking, I think the thing is, it's, it's so true. They're reactive. They're not proactive to anything. Then you always have these, you know, the FBI is being they. And then you always have these hearings. You know, some, you know, they, here's, here's these cronies that walk down. They're sitting there in their suit and tie. And then they're, it's a show. It's just one show after the other. Well, why didn't you, uh, information was provided to you. Uh, well, we didn't feel that this information was credible. Why was it not credible? It's obvious it was credible. It led to the incidents that led us here. You know what I'm saying? It, it's, it's the same thing over and over again. It's a charade. It's like you guys, it's really, really hard to, to wrap your mind around the fact that these agencies, these are, you know, FBI is a huge agency. And they don't want to share information. They don't want to. They, they want to live by these old, old ways of doing things that's proven not to work. I mean, there's software there that could have prevented this. That's the thing. And now here we are 20 years later, and the question is still on the table. Are we any more secure? And the answer is not. And, and the thing that gets you is that if you've been to that area in lower Manhattan, that is so dense. That area is so dense. And to David's point, those buildings are massive. I mean, people don't – I don't – you have to be on the ground and, and look up, and you can literally – look just straight up and you're looking at you know just skyscrapers you're in a concrete jungle but it's so dense with people and you realize like there were 3,000 people that were impacted here that lost their lives and you sit there and you say this was needless this could have been avoided and they, and they could have used technology to do it technology was there and available to, to prevent 3,000 lives being lost and we wouldn't we wouldn't be sitting here having this show talking about this topic on a, if they would have implemented what was there and at, available to them. Kendrick, your thoughts on this? It's just uh, sad when you look back on, especially you see as as September 11 passed, there were so many stories that they have that they've told, and plus you're getting more and more information comes out time after time again. But you can't. If anybody thinks, you know what, you guys are being too critical on the FBI or whatnot, but you watch those people's faces as they're seeing people jumping off the side of the building. And in one show, they you heard the thud after time after time. And then people are like, was that part of the building? Like, no, that's people. And you say, well, don't be so hard on the FBI. These are people who decided, I'd rather jump from a building or do I suffocate and burn? What kind of decision do you put a person in to where there's no easy way out? No. And someone decides, hey, I want to jump. And then you try to say, you know what? This could have been prevented. What also could have been prevented was uh, January 6th after the election. That could have been prevented. But you can't get people to say, you know what? We need to, as a country, get our policing organizations together, our intelligence organizations together, and let's communicate. Because this costs – this does cost – real lives and this can't be taken lightly so we celebrate september 11th every year now and but what are we celebrating we're celebrating people who have to give their lives unintentionally for this country for its failures no good point kendrick and uh that's the bottom line uh right now we're gonna play a clip the noises of 9-11 
This just in, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Yeah, now remember, oh my God. That looks like a second plane. That just exploded. I just saw another plane coming in from the side. You did. I just, I was out of the Yes, but that's the second explosion. You could see the plane come in just from the right hand side of the screen. So this looks like it is some sort of a concerted effort to attack the World Trade did you see what happened? What happened? Well, I was in the past train, and there was a huge explosion sound. Everyone came out. A large section of the building is blown out around the building. They are now saying that a plane, incredible, has crashed into the building. Folks, you hear another aircraft unbelievably has crashed into the Pentagon. This is a preliminary wire. We'll see the this work just into us from our newsroom, and perhaps another aircraft went in there. of what you've heard. Memories come back um, just in this discussion. I, I, I can't help but think about insult to injury when you think of the cost, the monies, the taxpayer dollars that have been spent on empowering these agencies, billions of dollars, empowering these agencies to be more effective. And then as you follow the money trail of specific programs that are designed to, you know, uphold their capabilities. And you see the money wasted. You read about it in the trade journals of some low percentage of actual capability that was gone after with those monies as the result of the effort. Less than 20% capability for the FBI with that uh, program that they spent I think it was $1.8 billion on uh, that's related to the topic that we're talking about. It's just, it's just really, really upsetting, and a lot of memories come back. Uh, but the insult, the injury with, with the cost, taxpayer dollars that are being spent, just uncalled for. Dennis, when I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking about how, you know, we lost well over almost 3,000 people died that day. 
And now we remember them every 9-11. But the thing that gets me is, are we remembering that we could not secure our nation on that day? There was no security for the people that died that day. Are we remembering that there was no, no systems in place to prevent this? And what are we doing to ensure that we remember every 9-11, not only the lives that were lost, I think that's awesome, and I think we need to continue to do so. But we also need to remember that on that day, our nation was not secure. On that day, Al-Qaeda was able to hijack three planes. On that day. So I think we need to, to, to make sure we understand that every time we remember 9-11, we need to be looking at the systems in place that we have as a nation to prevent this from happening again. But we can't do that if we don't remember that there was no system in place to prevent the loss of 2,996 lives. Uh, without question, and the fact of the matter is, to Kendrick's point earlier, uh, and to Dennis's point now, we're no safer than we were over 20 years ago. So as we remember the victims, why has Department of Homeland Security was a uh, part of government that was created? As a result of 9-11 and the tragedy that took place, can somebody explain to me that? If that agency was set up for that purpose, how are we no more safer today than we were then? Why is the why is Department of Homeland Security in existence? From the tragedy of 9-11, DHS was born. How then are we no safer? makes no sense at all. Don't go into the millions of dollars in creating that agency to ensure the safe conditions of the homeland. It absolutely makes no sense. Uh, we did at one point, uh, Congressman Charles Rangel, who has since retired, uh, and he's a representative that represented in New York. Uh, he came on this show discussing the tragedy that happened that day. I'd like to play for you now that interview with Congressman Charles Rangel. Let's hear his thoughts on this tragedy. Okay, Congressman Rangel, we, uh, we thank you for the opportunity of, of joining us tonight and uh, we thought it necessary to reach out uh, to your office as we reflect on 9-11 uh, and the tragedy that hit New York City. And we didn't think if there was anyone better uh, that could speak to it as we reflect and think about uh, what actually happened on that day. And we'd like you to share that with our listeners and, and where, we, where we are today as a nation as we try to continue to keep America safe. I'm so glad to participate in this discussion because no matter what problems we have individual as a nation, we're so blessed that with the exception of Pearl Harbor, we have never but never been struck 
as we were by terrorists. Everybody in New York and probably throughout the country recognizes where they were when these two planes struck a building and killed so many thousands of innocent people. So as a result of that, I feel the pain today of the reaction that our countries had in attacking people that they wanted that appeared to be now more political and more retaliatory than being accurate and the right thing to do. And so I would hope that if people truly believe, as I do, that this retaliation could have been avoided and indeed looked into the question as to what happened as a result of our attack on Israel. What happened when people who had religious and other disputes for thousands of years uh, decided that they would then attack the United States and other people? It seemed to me that anybody that doesn't participate by registering, by voting, by asking questions, are not really involved in the protection of the security of the United States. It was a vicious thing that happened to us. But compared to what has happened to other countries and what's going on today with homeless refugees, God has indeed blessed this wonderful country of ours. We ought to do something to protect them. No, absolutely, uh, Congressman. And uh, uh, we was uh, doing an opportunity uh, to look at some information uh, uh, this morning where uh, you basically fought very vigorously, uh, Congressman Rangel, to prevent uh, the Homeland Security shutdown. Um, of course, that is the Department of Homeland Security was born out of uh, the tragedy that took place uh, in New York City. Uh, what steps, in your opinion, do we need to take as a country but as a government uh, they, there was questions in regards to sharing information between uh, agencies, law enforcement agencies, that could have avoided this. What are your thoughts on that, and how do we correct that now, seeing the threat uh, that America faces uh, with other terrorist groups that may want to copycat, if you will, uh, th- those uh, those moments and those uh, actions taken by uh, al-Qaeda? We do this by encouraging informed people like you to raise these problems and questions, to inform and educate and to get people to ask questions. Because these are not interesting subjects, and sometimes they're not pleasant subjects. But as long as you reach out to those of us who are responsible for the decisions that cause or can uh, deflect, uh, these type of international horrific stories, then America would just hope that we do the best we can. People have to ask the question, why? Why did we have to fight for homeland security? Why did we have to fight for the funding? The truth of the matter is, homeland security had nothing to do with it. It was a polarization of the Republican Party that if they couldn't get their agreement as to the things they wanted legitimately, they would hold hostage to Homeland Security. Don't ask me why they thought 
that the United States would capitulate because they took away the heart of our security. But let me tell you this. Today, we marked up a bill in my committee. And soon, in October, the first or soon after, we would have reached our debt ceiling, which means what? America, the president would have to ask authority uh, from the Congress to borrow money. If the Congress doesn't give it to him and we default, our economy collapses and the international community that is led by the dependency on our currency will call chaos. Wrangle, are you saying that Congress is going to let that happen? Well, they got to the brink of it before, and as a result of this, the threat of it, we lost hundreds of billions of dollars because people refused to invest in America. Well, how could it possibly happen today? We, the Republicans, passed a bill saying that it's to prevent a default bill. Well, then it's not going to happen. All they're saying is don't use the word default. But what does that mean? They say Treasury can borrow more money, but they have to pay back our foreign people who invested first. Well, what's wrong with that? It means that they never considered our obligation to our sick, our poor, our disabled, our veterans, just the people that, that we borrowed money from. Hey, I'll be glad to get on your program when this thing gets on the floor. And then people would say, God, I never thought they would do that in Washington. Well, the frustration that people have with Washington is what creates people like Don Trump. They don't love him. They're just frustrated with government. I got to run now. But call okay. me back. I'm glad to talk with you any other evening, okay? Thank you, Congressman. And thanks for your service. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you very much. And we appreciate you. And we will be uh, reaching out to you again. Take care and be safe Thank out there in Washington. Thank you so much. I'll be there for you. Thank you. Thank you, Congressman. Take care. Well, there you have it, Congressman Rangel. Um, really a pillar uh, on Capitol Hill was prior to retire, that was an older interview, but you hear his passion, you hear his frustration uh, as to why 9-11 even happened. Uh, it hit close to home since he represents that state uh, and districts there in New York. Um, it really is overwhelming. Uh, the impact and how politics is rendered and played, uh, even in a time of tragedy of that magnitude, is 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 absolutely uncomprehendable to me. Uh, Dave, you had another comment you wanted to have, and you hear the congressman talk about how difficult it was in getting the funding on Homeland Security. Well, one of the other things that we found is that. The FBI was even against Homeland Security because they felt they should be getting the funding and they should be doing the job of Homeland Security. So you had contention in the legal, in the law enforcement community of the federal government in protecting the United States, which is unacceptable. Well, no eagles were left at the door. At what cost does a person's ego have to be out of the way. You're worried about Department of Homeland Security getting credit 
for protecting the homeland because you want it as the FBI, you will never get anything accomplished that way. And when does human life supersede any such nonsense and discussion uh, even even being had? Exactly. Demetrius. And one of the things I think, David, to David's point earlier, 9-11 was a serious tragedy, and we remember it and reflect every year. But you also have January 6th. And my point here is you have these people that mean harm to our country that watched on TV because it was all on TV what happened January 6th. Does that give them more ideas to attack the state capitol? They saw a bunch of uh, domestic terrorists do it. Why, why can't they devise a plan? They methodically thought of this for 9-11. What gives them more power? And we're sitting here squabbling and not sharing data and all that thing. We're going to actually have that happen again. It's very the possibility of that happening is very real. It's just ridiculous. You, and this is my thought on the Middle East removal uh, of American soldiers with a job not done. Uh, Al Qaeda moved in so quickly. Uh, you're talking about ISIS. You're talking about any type of group that can move in and given that immediate power. It shows the failure of the United States, in my opinion. Uh, you never, and, and if I'm not mistaken, it's a violation of Geneva Conventions uh, in regards to not leaving a area uh, unarmed, unmanned, and, and the people left undone to be able to protect themselves. Uh, it was to me, and, and this is on both sides of the aisle. Republicans and Democrats are saying, why did we make that move? Uh, we continue the same behaviors. Uh, that triggered a 9-11, I promise you, you're very likely to see it again. hate to say it. That's a reality. We don't change our behaviors. We are going to have a sincere problem. We're going to take a quick break. On the side of the break, we're coming back with our very special guest. Uh, she is a psychologist, uh, Dana Rose uh, Garfin. She's going to be joining us. Uh, in regards to her thoughts and how people are getting through from her perspective as a psychologist when tragedy of this magnitude hits. How do we get past it? America still has not passed those attacks on this nation. How do we go forward? We'll deal with that on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio. Picture this. A 75-year-old man convicted of murder waiting for his trial to finally go through. He's been on death row for 25 years now and finds out he's been wrongfully convicted and is completely innocent. Not only does this mean that 25 years of his life has been spent in jail for no reason, but that the actual murderer could still be out there right now. The bad thing is that this exact thing happens more often than you think, so you can help stop it by supporting our campaign to abolish the death penalty. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister, a registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested, held in custody, questioned without my knowledge, exposed to violence, witnessed to rape, placed in solitary confinement, unable to call or see me, shackled to a wall, beaten, sentenced as an adult at age 17, Sentenced as an adult at age 16. Sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost. Isolated. Ostracized. Misjudged. Terrified. And in the absence of all hope, 
My child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we have power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We can make a difference. There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you are the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Good morning, students, and welcome to Career Day. I hope you're excited to hear about all the great things you can do when you grow up. Hi, everyone. I'm Emily. I'm super excited to introduce my dad because he's my hero. When I was little, my dad was away a lot. But I was okay with that because he was doing this really important work, driving ambulances in Iraq. Now he's at home, which is great for me because I get to see him every day now. And he's still the biggest hero I know because he kills all the amulets and the fire engines where to go and rescue people when there's an emergency. I'm so proud of him. He's awesome. He's my dad. If your service-connected disability prevents you from continuing in your civilian career, Voc Rehab offers counseling, training with a living allowance, education, and other services to help prepare you for your next mission. We know you care. Now it's time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders facing trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Odds of becoming an astronaut, 1 in 13,200,000. Odds of being struck by lightning, 1 in 576,000. Odds of dating a supermodel, 1 in 88,000. Odds of bowling a perfect game, 1 in 11,500. Odds of being trapped in an elevator, 1 in 24,528. Odds of catching a ball at a major league game, 1 in 563. Odds of an injury from shaving, 1 in 6,585. Odds of tripping while texting, 1 in 10. Odds of getting cancer in your lifetime, 1 in 2 men, 1 in 3 women. It's up to us to change the odds for our generation. For the ones we love. For our future. If you don't like the odds, stand up. Stand up to cancer.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio as AJC Radio remembers 9-11. And that is our show topic tonight as we have uh, relived some of the most horrific moments um, of that day. Uh, Very special thanks a few years back, uh, several years back, uh, talking to Congressman Rangel was a true person that... uh, was very, very touched by the impact of 9-11 uh, and gave us the opportunity to appear on this show more than one occasion. Uh, and we, we are appreciative uh, for him for that. Uh, right now, we're going to be joined uh, with our very special guest, uh, Dana Garfin. Uh, she is a psychologist, uh, faculty in Sue and Bill Gross School of Nursing. Um, and I'm going to let her give the proper introductions, but she deals with issues um, psychologically, I believe, in regards to how people cope with such tragedies. Uh, we still, uh, this many years later, tear up uh, when we hear the little girl talking about her father who was gone. Uh, the, the screams of horror, uh, as Kendrick alluded to, of people jumping from those towers, either choosing to be burned to death or to die jumping out of a building which they knew they would never survive. Uh, those are big issues. Uh, so we're very happy to have Dana. Dana, are you with us? Yeah, hi. Hello, Dana, and uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us for this show as we remember 9-11. Um, give us your thoughts, uh, and I'll, I'll have you give an introduction to our listeners. Uh, I'll give you the floor to do that and talk to us you have seen probably a heck of a lot more than what I have uh, in regards to people coping uh, by that being your specialty and dealing with these type of issues. Uh, we're anxious to hear your perspective on this and this regarding this uh, very, very horrific tragedy. Uh, I'll give you the floor now. All right. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, I'm a psychologist and I am faculty at UC Irvine. I'm in the Sue and Briel Gross School of Nursing and the uh, program in public health. And for over a decade, my colleagues and I have been studying how people respond to collective trauma. So when we think about collective trauma, these are kind of large scale community events that impact many people directly and that impact a community, a nation, even the world through the way that people experience them via the media and the stories, um, social media, television, you know, so these are kind of like the big events like 9-11. So uh, my colleagues and I, there were a number of studies that were conducted um, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And the one that I was involved with, uh, we looked at kind of the long-term effects of 9-11 on the populace. So um, how Americans as a whole, responded to these events, um, not only just the people that were at the events, but uh, people that were, you know, living all over the United States. Yeah, and, and what are you finding now? Uh, is it normal protocol or, or behavior, is a better word, uh, that people are still so uh, impact uh, still by this tragedy? I know some's last, some Tragedies in the minds of people last longer than others. Uh, this was a major deal; never happened in the history of our country. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how do you how, how do you weigh that? What or is it just a, a case by case basis of, of how deep that goes? Well, I think that you know one thing that's really important that you kind of touched on 
is that there is wide variability in how people respond to these events. So when we're thinking about how to take care of ourselves, how to reach out to other people, processing all of this, you know, I think it's really important to remember that some people might not ever have a strong reaction. Some people might have a very strong reaction that lasts months, years, decades, maybe even for the rest of their lives. You know, I think a lot of people felt very emotional last weekend with all the media coverage and remembering where they were, how they felt. Um, and, you know, I think that 9-11, there were so many unique features of it. I mean, first of all, it was it was really, you know, the first large-scale act of terrorism on American soil. We all experienced it. I mean, almost everybody remembers where they were when the planes hit the towers, you know, people were turning on the TV. If they weren't watching it live, they thought, you know, pretty soon after that, like those horrifying images. Um, And so it was something that people really experienced kind of together. And it was one of the first events. I mean, now we kind of experience these events together all the time, but it was also this kind of like almost watershed moment in American society that ushered in this new way of experiencing crises where we see them on TV, we talk about them, we get updates on our phones. And, you know, we kind of, there's so many more ways to experience it just by then reading it in the newspaper or seeing it for a few seconds on the evening news. No, absolutely right. And uh, David? Uh, yeah, Dan, I have a question. Uh, between what's happened at 9-11 and, and thank you for joining us, uh, and, and uh, what happened What's happening now, I see the coverage of 9-11. It was a more of a, a coming uh, together. It wasn't as politically divisive. It was an issue that all Americans kind of came together, circled the wagons around, uh, and actually stood with, with each other. I, I compare and contrast that now to COVID-19, I see that the mm-hmm. country has has devolved uh, greatly in handling uh, of how they're dealing with COVID-19, whether you want to be vaccinated, not vaccinated. I'm just, uh, I just think the country has gotten worse with regard to dealing with uh, tragedies like this. And and it could be the divisiveness of uh, politics. Uh, The media has definitely become a little more, I say a little more, a lot more, uh, divisive and, and seems to stir the stir the pot and stir people uh, stir anger against one another and, and uh, I know you're dealing dealing with that stress have do you, have you seen a change in the way uh, America in general is dealing with these sorts of issues? You know it's a really interesting question. So you know when we think about how Americans responded to 9/11, I mean there certainly was this sort of rally around the flag effect. People were very supportive of Bush, his approval rating skyrocketed, you know, people were very moved and comforted and touched by his words and his speeches that he gave it, you know, those, those days and weeks after. But, you know, one thing that I think is, is, is interesting is you have heard a lot of people say that and compare it to COVID-19. You know, I think that one of the things that's different is that we did have that same in-group, out-group phenomenon, just not within our country. I mean, if you think about what, happened in the aftermath of 9-11. I mean, we launched two wars with other countries, and there was certainly this sort of in-group, out-group, us-them experience, um, wanting to blame Muslims for what happened. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, discrimination and, you know, hate crimes and um, a lot of really, you know, vile events that happened even within this country. 
but they were just directed towards a certain, you know, ethnic group, religious group, and towards people in other countries. So there right. was this sort of rally around the flag effect, but I, I would caution people to kind of think about that time with, you know, too much of a rose-colored glass. I mean, it launched us into a 20-year war that we really only just finished two weeks ago. Right, right. All right, thank you. Well, then I'm going to play, play a clip. We talk about the emotions, what people have when they hear certain things. We feel connected uh, to your point as a country uh, mm-hmm. that this is um, the sacrifices that were made that day uh, with mm-hmm. death, with people knocking on death's door. Uh, there was heroes, that seen heroes and unseen heroes that we never saw. I want to play a clip right now about one of the heroes that was there that day. I'm going to get your thoughts on it. Let's play the clip. Okay. families of the fallen. In those awful moments, after the South Tower was hit, some of the injured huddled in the wreckage of the 78th floor. The fires were spreading. The air was filled with smoke. It was dark. They could barely see. It seemed as if there was no way out. And then there came a voice, clear, calm, saying he had found the stairs. A young man in his 20s, strong, emerged from the smoke, and over his nose and his mouth, he wore a red handkerchief. He called for fire extinguishers to fight back the flames. He tended to the wounded. He led those survivors down the stairs to safety and carried a woman on his shoulders down 17 flights. Then he went back, back up all those flights, then back down again, bringing more wounded to safety. Until that moment when the tower fell. They didn't know his name. They didn't know where he came from. But they knew their lives had been saved by the man in the red bandana. Again, Mayor Bloomberg, distinguished guests, Mayor de Blasio, Governors Christie and Cuomo, families survivors of that day. To all those who responded with such courage, on behalf of Michelle and myself and the American people, uh, it is honor for us to join in your memories, to recall and to reflect, but above all, to reaffirm the true spirit of 9-11. Love compassion, sacrifice, and to enshrine it forever in the heart of our nation.
you have it, uh, President Barack Obama uh, giving tribute uh, to that hero uh, who ran in in harm's way to save lives on that day. Uh, if you have any feeling, any emotion, uh, it's triggered through that. Uh, the last time that he went in to save a life, uh, he did not come out. He became a hero uh, that was taken in that on that day. Uh, Daniel, when you hear that, if that doesn't connect the nation uh, of the importance of remembering uh, the sacrifices that were made, then I'm not sure what will. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly powerful story. I mean, of course, even especially to hear Barack Obama be, be speaking to the nation and, and, and recounting that story. I mean, you know, I, like many other Americans this weekend, you know, I was able to uh, watch some of the news coverage and some of the documentaries and hear some of the stories of those heroes. And certainly absolutely powerful, riveting, moving, inspiring and, you know, I, I do think that, you know, as we've kind of been remembering 9-11 the past week on this 20-year anniversary, um, you know, it is a time to think about people like that that were heroes. They didn't know these were complete strangers. They were putting their lives on the line to risk and save. And, you know, I think it is kind of a beautiful message to think about, you know, how how can we embody that now in America? Like you were saying, you know, there is so much divisiveness, you know, is there some of that spirit of selflessness and coming together and wanting to reach out our hand and help a fellow American that, you know, we can kind of take from this experience of remembering 9-11 and, you know, move forward as a country? Oh, I mean, good point to be made there. Um, so let me ask you a question. Um some of the people, and, and maybe you could answer this, maybe you, you'll have to take a, a professional guess at it. How is it, because I can't go here to a point I can, but to a point I can't, so I'm trying to wrap my hands around it, yeah. that you have people on those floors that in some way believe that in, that they can get out of there. But then for those that felt there was no, because some people were rescued early on, uh, and we're able to get out of there. So the people, as Kendrick alluded to earlier, jumping out of windows, knowing for certain you were going to die, or but the flames were coming so quickly, the fires were moving so rapidly through that building. Um, how do you make that choice? Because is there a chance you can survive it? Maybe get down that stairwell, as we've heard stories and testimonies of that as well. Um, Psychologically, what is a person going through in those moments that would trigger one decision, one one other or the other? Yeah, that's a you know that's a really good question. I mean, one thing that struck me when I was kind of listening to a lot of the survivors talk this weekend was the fact you know we look at it in retrospect and we know that plane hit the building, the building's going to collapse, and like get out, get out, get out, get out. Um, we kind of have that feeling listening to those stories and and watching. But, you know, these people, a lot of them had no idea what had happened. I mean, there was even the stories right. they came on the speaker, I think, in the South Tower and told people to go back to their desk. And then some people did go back to their desk. And then other people are sitting there looking at each other like, I think we need to get out of here. You know, so I, I think that in those situations like that, there is this sort of fight or flight response that takes over. 
Um, I think people often follow the people around them. So if one person looks behind them and sees a ball of fire and they're like, let's jump out this building, we're not going to make it, you know, do the sign of the cross and hold hands and jump. I mean, you know, you saw and heard stories of that. And then, you know, I think if there was, you know, a quote unquote hero that said, you know, take my hand, we're, we're getting out of here, you know, and people were likely to follow them. So I think, you know, the power of the group in those situations is really, really powerful. And, you know, the person that leads them through the flames, you know, might get them to safety and they might be burned away. You know, there's not necessarily a right or wrong way to, to respond right. to that. But I, I definitely think it, in a lot of those cases, it was those heroes that looked at their colleagues and peers and strangers and said, we're getting out of here. Let's go. You know? Right. Right. So it, well, listen, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Dana. Go ahead. Oh, no, that, that's all I was going to say. Well, I, I know we were we were told when you came on, you're kind of on a, on a crunch here for timing. I would love to extend an invitation for you to come back to our show. Um, I think you can add perspective to a lot of things and a lot of topics that we discuss here on AJC Radio. I want to open that invitation up to you to please feel free. Um, we'll have our team get a hold of you, and perhaps you can add some perspective to a lot of things that we're dealing with right now within the criminal justice system, within government. There's so many challenging issues. Uh, that we're dealing with uh, here at, as advocates, uh, we would love to get your perspective. But we're going to be respectful of your time because I understand you have another appointment. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And I would definitely, I'd love to come back and discuss a lot of these issues. It's certainly things that, you know, my colleagues and I have been researching and talking about and thinking about and writing about. So uh, I definitely look forward to joining you again in the future. And we look forward to having you. Thank you so much for taking time today. And uh, will we be in touch offline regarding some of these upcoming topics before the break for the rest of the year? Uh, we're going to definitely get back with you, okay? Thank you so much. All right. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, bye. Take care. There you have it. Dana Garfin uh, adding some perspective to, I mean, added a perspective to a very troubled situation. Uh, it's very touchy. Uh, when you're dealing with life and death, and attacks on a place to Dennis's point earlier, what point is lost? Why were we not secure? And how does an attack that's never happened in the history of this country hit our homeland? And I'll tell you what, after having a discussion here tonight, we got eagles at the door. They're not at, excuse me, they're not at the door. They actually are in the room. And you're never going to get nothing done as long as that's the case. AJC Radio 9-11, we remember the tragedy of that day, and we look back. That continues here after the break. This is AJC Radio. Get in this about it. I've got to go home. Oh, come on, Carrie. We're going to a new place. Don't be your she wants to go home, right? Let's go. Whoa. You okay to drive? Yeah, I'm fine. Relax. What's this? You beer. If you don't stop your friend from drinking and driving, you're as good as dead. Drinking and driving can kill a friendship. You must have thrown a thousand pitches teaching him to hit a home run. Spent countless Saturdays running routes so he could learn to hit an open receiver. Endless afternoons teaching him how to hit the three-pointer. 
how much time have you spent teaching him what not to hit? Teaching boys that all violence against women is wrong is one of the most important things a man can do. Learn how to start the conversation at teachearly.org. Brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the Ad Council. Meeting a teen girl online is actually pretty easy. You can go into any chat room and just start talking. Most of the girls are usually so insecure and desperate for attention. Attention from older guys is totally flattering. They're so much more mature and understanding than the guys might. Age actually works to my advantage. They like to brag to their friends that they're dating an older guy, so I just play along and pretend I'm really interested. interested in the same things I am. You can talk forever and really get to know someone without worrying about looks or whatever. That's the best thing about chatting. Chatting seems unthreatening to them, so they lower their guard. After a while, I start talking about how we're soulmates and how lucky we are to have found each other. Other people don't understand. I know what I'm doing. If you really care about each other, there's nothing wrong with me. Meeting them is the goal. Once I get them out of their house, well, that's when things get really interesting. Online predators know what they're doing. Do you? get anywhere quickly. You don't want your friends to be annoyed, so you text. You're on your way. Five seconds is the average time your eyes are off the road while texting while driving. Make sure you get where you're going. Hey guys, I'm Jordan Sparks. I'm Chase Crawford. And what's up? It's Usher. Hi, I'm Rachel Bilson. I'm Hayden Christensen. I'm Peyton Manning. Hey, we're Fall Out Boys. I'm Dude Archuleta. I'm Corbin Blue. I'm Kristen Bell. And we're the Jonas Brothers. Do something good for your community. Reuse bags and bottles and always recycle. Help us collect a million pounds of food. Help people prepare for natural disasters. Do something about homelessness. Anyone could be a rock star in their community. So then do something. Do something. Do something. Do something. Visit dosomething.org to find out how. When news and headlines following an act of gun violence fade away, who's left? The families. Gun violence is real. It affects more people than you would ever imagine. Losing a family member is one of the worst things that anyone can ever go through. This is something that's often forgotten, like what happens to the people after the incident. Although our country struggles to agree on a long-term solution to gun violence, we can all agree on one thing. Any family suffering a loss as a result of gun violence needs our support. Focus needs to shift to the human being. These continue to happen, and more people have joined the club that we didn't ask to be a part of. There's families that are not getting the help that they need. It seems like there's nobody really rallying around the people who have experienced the hardship that we have. So many families in need, and I can really empathize with that. They need our love. Compassion and hope. Life for these families may not get any easier. Their lives are never going to be the same. Ever. But with the support of others, they will get stronger. We can help. The Christina Grimmie Foundation, building a legacy of hope and inspiration. I wish I was in school. Or a book report to give. I wish I was in school. 
do extra homework. I'll skip recess. I wish I was in school. I wish I was in school. I really wish I was in school. School ends, but free lunches for your kids don't have to. Find your local food bank at feedingamerica.org slash summer meals for help. Together, we're feeding America. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio as we find ourselves as a nation in troubled waters. Why is that? The bottom line is, is that America is no safer today than it was when the attack happened. That is inexcusable. It's inexcusable because there are ways that these type of tragedies could be avoided with one simple phrase, the sharing of information. As we talked earlier on this show, uh, the FBI and these agencies are about self-interest to the point whereas there's no excuse why this country would not be safer, but eagles were never left at the door. But at what cost do those things happen? At what cost do we retain self-interest? As you know, the IRP-5 were five gentlemen that sought out and found a way to lower the risk of terrorist attack on this nation. Uh, David Banks is going to speak a little bit to this issue that without these things being done, my understanding, David, is that you stood at ground zero. In that moment, you knew this was something that was not supposed to happen. Give me your thoughts. What you saw at ground zero, what motivated you to do nothing but the right thing, and that was to develop this software. As I said in my previous uh, comments, uh, I had been to New York City long before 9-11 to go back and been in been in the the twin towers to go back uh and see those giant holes in the ground i stood on the ninth floor of the millennium hilton which is right across the street from uh the the trade center towers and and literally broke down i just uh, uh just trying to imagine the the horror and the terror that were experienced by people that day uh at the time we were we were marketing uh it motivated us and i'll get to that in a minute but it motivated us to do something uh to try to help law enforcement uh because it was found that they had that their systems were old and if we thought as uh, software engineers that we could help them get better and 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 then move with uh uh passion from the lives lost and seeing the gravity of the holes in that ground i still uh, to this day it still is as fresh in my 
head and heart as it, as it was then. Um, <clears throat> so we got together and went about to develop uh, a case management software solution that could help our law enforcement. But unfortunately, we talked that law enforcement reactive, we don't, as African-American entrepreneurs, we didn't fit their profile. We didn't fit, fit the FBI's profile. Therefore, we were, we climbed the ladder with our case management software. It was called Silk Case Investigative Lifecycle. And we climbed to the, uh, to the heights of the Department of Homeland Security, NYPD, and some other agencies. And our software was recognized as revolutionary and that it could change the entire uh, game as far as case management is concerned in law enforcement. At one point, uh, our software was considered to be a solution that was that could be used by every single federal law enforcement agency and be deployed and implemented where they could all collectively share information by uh, although they would still have compart uh, compartmentalization of their agency information and and we developed this smart we work with law enforcement but again uh, we were not accepted. We're African-Americans. Uh, uh, two large companies that already failed, uh, specifically SAIC with the virtual case file, and then ultimately uh, Sentinel, which was done by Lockheed Martin. Uh, uh, you're talking near $1.2 to $1.3 billion spent on failed projects. And Jack Israel uh, spoke to uh, government IT, uh, fierce government I IT at the time, and he said the unraveling of the Sentinel project, the billion-dollar Sentinel project, was their ability to build an independent case management system, which we had developed and, and was earmarked uh, by high-level officials in the government. But uh, we ran into lots of issues with companies trying to steal the software, undermine us, Somebody else wanted the business, and uh, the FBI and the justice system was ultimately used as a tool to destroy us and our company. And this is the nature of why uh, of government in many instances, not everybody, uh, but this is the nature of government in the United States. Innovation can't come through a black company on something of this of this scale. It has to come through somebody handpicked by the powers to be. Uh, and that's what happened. We were railroaded, we were set up, and we were put in prison because we wouldn't let go of our dream to provide and to, and, and, and to build a software solution. As again, we were, went, uh, we were contacted by large companies. One company, specifically IBM, was, was told to contact us because we had something that the federal government was interested in and it we were the only players in the game at that time and sadly in this country uh they talk about the american dream it's it's not for everybody it all depends on what your dream is and that dream can be extinguished through large companies uh, colluding with the government in, in an oligarch type fashion to destroy your company 
so they can maintain their power and their money. And sadly, uh, we built something. Obviously, it's still around, located somewhere. Uh, I'm not dealing with it right now, but uh, like I said, we could have made a difference. But sadly, in, in our system of government, uh, if you're African-American uh, and you're innovators of, of uh, technology, software technology that could revolutionize law enforcement case management, it's not going to be accepted from you. Uh, it has to come through somebody that they want and their friends that that they want want to want to do. It's just it's just it's a sad day, and that's why I feel like those who repeat uh, uh, who don't regard history are doomed to repeat it. And I think eventually, uh, with the reactive government, there will be another attack in this country of some sort uh, and of some uh, substantial scale because of the failure of our government to uh, not show favoritism uh, and to have uh, racist tendencies towards people. And, and, and it's not completely racist, but it's, it's uh, money is green and people want it. And if you don't have, uh, and the people with the money can take you down to get more money and to remove you. And that's that a lot of this country uh, is about money more than it is about people, and our government is, is a, a microcosm of that. And the tragedy here, um, you have these executives that created something that no one can touch. But because of the racial profiling, now you're more than happy if you'd like to take a couple of government buildings and uh, set up a janitorial company through there. And we'll give you contracts, and we'll let you do that. Or you can come in and bring uh, barbecue or anything else in and feed people at the places. Listen, that's a reality. It's a tragic reality because the missed talent here. If it was that simple, if people were judged, as Martin Luther King's dream said, that they were judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, this isn't. This is not a conversation we're having. It's just not. Uh, Dave, and then I'll come to you, Demetrius. And there may be people out there that are saying there's no way that race would come into play here. Well, we had a high-level NYPD official turn around and say to the executives of this company, "You need to put a white face on this company." So it's just flat-out racial. That's what it is. Demetrius. Yeah, exactly, Dave. Um, if this was five white executives, one colored, black, whatever you want to call it, we wouldn't be sitting here today. But we had African-Americans that were smart, intelligent, that built something revolutionary. And as David's point, history, they didn't want history to show that law enforcement was changed by African-Americans. And that goes a seated in Americans' history of as, as Dave mentioned, racist uh, tendency to say we don't want to give credit to a black man or black company that revolutionized and changed the way we do uh, information sharing with law enforcement. Well, look, the bottom line is this. If I'm drowning in ocean water, I could care less. I don't care if you're black, you're white, any nationality, throw me the lifeline so I can get to safety. Um 
that's where we should be in this country. This software was, was created by men who worked night and day through a lot of pain, a lot of sweat, a lot of tears. And that has to account for something. What we see through this experience of the IRP-5 is one thing. This country is in a horrible condition when it comes to racism in this country. No, folks are not walking around wearing hoods. But the racists are in judges' chambers. They're in police departments. They're in prosecutors' offices. They simply have a different wardrobe. But the racism is no less. In many ways, it's even worse than what we have seen. And I, I, I characterize them as, as justice system mercenaries. They're just uh, people that are hired to by the rich and powerful in many instances to go after uh, people of a certain uh, social economic class that they want to bring down. They'll bring down people of higher classes, but uh, that's what I, that's the way I see the justice system now. They're just uh, mercenaries, justice system mercenaries for hire. Um, a lot of people will say, well, you uh, look at the facts. Uh, you could get a thousand attorneys to uh, debate me. They will never change my mind. I was there. I know exactly what happened. We went through this. We know exactly what happened. And sad to say, the media, again, a lot of people are complaining about institutions in this country right now, and the media is one of them. Uh, they got shut down. So what, what do we have, state-controlled media? Uh, reporters threatening to get fired if they if they uh, told the story. They couldn't let it get out. Um we had a bunch we had interest in by numerous media outlets wanting to tell the story then all of a sudden they would just disappear this stuff is happening so if, if people haven't been through this you can't tell any of the irp5 about how the government works and how the justice system works we've witnessed it firsthand and all of the facts all of the objective evidence and all the documents uh, are proof positive of what what happened and what can happen uh, in this in this system, and which is why government continues. Nothing seems to change in government; it only seems to get worse. We're seeing that in with COVID nineteen, the, the divisiveness with, with within the country and pitting people against each other, the vaxxed and the unvaxxed. There's a lot of uh, and the media is involved in that too. There's a lot of very sinister things going on in this country, which is why uh, I just I, I just don't see a bright future for the United States of America, uh, given even the latest stuff with COVID-19, Afghanistan, and things like that. I just think it's going to get worse at this point. I just have lost a lot of faith in mankind in general to be uh, somewhat true to, 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 what they, to, to what they believe, true to the Constitution. And as Martin Luther King said, true to what you, what they said on paper. They're just not true to what is being presented uh, in the media about 99% of, of people are good people. We don't know that. And, and when you go through, this, go through the system like we have, you, you will find out 
you're not sure how many people are actually good in the system, to be honest with you. Well, it's the same old song as David alludes to here, even within our government with the COVID-19. Now, no defense to President Trump for the things that happened. Uh, that blame lays where it, where it lays. But you talk in one breath, and this is why it's a repeated cycle. You talk in one breath that President Trump divided the country, pitting people against each other. Now you have Joe Biden, President Biden, pitting people, using vaccinated or the unvaccinated. Now you're pitting people against, so we're demonized anybody in this country that says, you know what, uh, I, don't, I have a right not to take a vaccine that is proven to kill people. I don't care if it's a 1% chance. I'm making that point to say this. It is the same old song. It continues to be played. When Joe Biden gets out of office, somebody else will come in, and you have the same back-and-forth nonsense. So the culture of this country is in a horrible spot because it just, it's, a, it's a revolving door. So now you have who's going to call out President Biden for dividing the country of the vaccinated and the unvaccinated? Who calls him out? Because you have people getting in fights in grocery stores, in restaurants, at locations, at movies. Well, you've been vaccinated. Well, you're, you're basically killing people. That is a wrong objective and a wrong statement to make. And they better realize a country divided against itself cannot stand. It cannot. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ said that in the Bible. Abraham Lincoln said it. This co- a divided country is bound to fall uh, and we're on that path uh, in a very hard and fast way. Well, and I think we make that point for one reason. As David said, things don't change for the most part. I don't know what greater tragedy has to happen in this country bigger than 9-11 that you would think we would sit down and say, look, this has to change. If something as big as 9-11, as we remember the victims tonight, the tragedy tonight, if that doesn't move people to say, we're doing it wrong, the RP5 has a solution. They should have been running, knocking your doors down. We need your help. No, you got too many egos in the way. At the cost of human Lies. But it's never been about the people. It's, it's never, never been, been that. It's uncomprehendable to me. We're going to take a quick break, come back with the, the, the our closing comments. 9-11, we got a lot of similarities of 9-11 happening in this country right now. A divided nation, not only racially, but decision and the right to choose when it comes to choices regarding this vaccine, you're talking about a huge mess. And all these things are going on at the time of the remembrance of 9-11. This country has lost her way. How do we find our way back? This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Julie. 
please, how may I help you? My husband and I just got in a fight, and he hit me. With one call, you don't have to be a victim anymore. These fights are getting worse. I don't know what to do. With one call, you can end the cycle of violence. We're glad you called. The first thing we want to do is to ensure your safety. With one call, you can change everything. To speak to a domestic abuse victim advocate, contact your local family advocacy program. I can solve difficult problems for a Fortune 500 company. I can run a successful business. I can manage your home improvements. I can publicize the message. I can motivate your audience. I can put my military experience to work for your company. I can teach your children. I can boost your bottom line. I can help you to a place. I could be a loyal and productive employee. But I can't put my skills to work for your organization if I'm not given the opportunity. If you don't recognize my talents and ability. If you don't hire me. If you don't have an open mind and a workplace that's open to everyone. If you don't realize that America works best when everybody works. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? You can remember that it works. It's what people can do. It's what people can do that matters. Nearly 50 million Americans have disabilities. Capitalize on their talents with employment practices that benefit everyone. Learn more at whatcanyoudocampaign.org. Sergeant Michelle Garcia served meritoriously in Iraq and has the medals to prove it. Soon after leaving the Navy, Lieutenant Chris Scott found a job, a home, and started a family of his own. Foreman Richard Stokely took the skills he learned in Vietnam and put them to good use as a paramedic. But soon after leaving the military, each of these veterans fell on hard times and faced homelessness. Even after Michelle lost all her savings, even after Chris wasn't able to pay his mortgage, and even after Richard battled alcoholism for years, they each reached out for help when they needed it most. A simple phone call put them in touch with a trained professional from the Department of Veterans Affairs. That call got Michelle a place to stay until she could afford one of her own, put Chris in touch with employment assistance, and found Richard a substance abuse program. These veterans are success stories, not only for how they were able to help others while serving their country, but for how they were able to let others help them. If you know of or are a veteran in need, make the call. Let me tell you who to blame. Blame the boy lying at your feet, his body oozing life through the hole in his stomach where the bullet tore him apart. Blame him for challenging you, for not looking away, and for not backing down when you pulled out the gun. Blame your mother for bringing you into this world when she was but a kid herself, and for dragging you up, not bringing you up. Blame society for not giving you hope. Blame your father for not being there, the man who looked after himself instead of looking after you. Blame the gun in your hand for making you a target, for making you more likely to be picked on. Blame the dead boy, blame your mother, blame society, blame your father, blame the gun, blame anyone but yourself for not being strong enough to put down the gun, to break the cycle. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. 
Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. help but generate tears. The tragic events of that day taught us as a nation exactly where we are. As the unseen heroes who attempted to avoid another attack of that magnitude known as the RP5 when ignored for their efforts as they stood at ground zero as the tears ran down their face, saying, not on my watch will this happen again. As they embraced the entrepreneur spirit of a nation, they received an, an illegal sentence and a wrongful conviction for a crime that was never committed. 
what they were guilty of is being patriots of this nation. What they were guilty of is creating software that would protect the lives of its citizens from coast to coast. This is what the RP5 and their vision was all about. As we reflect a year later, again, another year passed, America must rethink their positions. Racism must be done away with. The software that the RP5 have produced, without question, could keep the homeland safe. But due to political agendas and egos of other law enforcement agencies in this country, we stand at a crossroad of decision. That is, what will we do to avoid another attack? Until next time, America, stay safe. And remember, we're in this together. This is AJC Radio. Good night. Until next time.